May I welcome you to episode 9 of Moving Matters. I am your host, Colin Wynn. I hope Moving Matters will give you an insight into others working or have worked in this wonderful industry as I delve into their past, their present and their future. You will find a new episode of Moving Matters on the second and fourth Thursday of each month. It was a great opportunity for me to record this episode with my guest, a guest who is not only an expert in his field, but one who enjoys great banter with everyone he crosses. He is one of the social animals of the industry, and an absolute pleasure to know. My guest this episode is Greg Wildman, Managing Director of Basil Fry & Company. Enjoy. Good morning, Greg. How are you today? Morning. I'm great. Thanks, Colin. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Welcome to Moving Matters. Thank you. Can you tell everyone a little about yourself and the length of time in this industry? Yeah, uh, I was um, born in Wimbledon uh, in the early 70s. And um, just this year, my dad has passed away um, at the age of uh, 92. And mum's now down living in Bournemouth, and I went to uh, see her this week. And um, we're talking about sort of the career that I've had and different things I've done. And mum reminded me of the time that I walked through the door and told her that I'd got a job uh, as a paperboy. I was 13 years old. Uh, And the reason that came about was because I I was round a a mate's house and he had this wonderful Sega machine. And I said to him, how, how can you afford one of these? And he said, oh, it's easy. I've saved up my paper round money uh, and uh, bought one. So I thought, right, I'm going to have a, I'm gonna have a bit of that action. And um, started uh, going out and working, um, albeit just for an hour a morning or 45 minutes, whatever it was. And that, that really got me going uh, in, into the world of work. From there, I sort of went out on the mobile greengrocer van that used to deliver vegetables to mum, you know, way before Ricardo thought of it. And, you know, just watching these sort of smaller uh, entrepreneurs building their business and selling to their customers was, was a real eye-opener for me, and I found it, found it very interesting. As I said, I was born in Wimbledon. As such, I'm a massive AFC Wimbledon fan and season ticket holder. And my third job was at the co-op, and I actually left the co-op when I was 15 uh, because I needed a Saturday off to go and watch Wimbledon in the uh, FA Cup semi-final. <laughs> play, uh, play Luton, and the manager wouldn't give it to me, so I said, right, I'm leaving. <laughs> so, yeah, exited the co-op, and when I was 16, my parents dropped really what was a bit of a bombshell on me in, in that they were retiring and moving down to Wimbledon in Dorset. And, and that summer, after just doing my GCSEs, I worked as a uh, worked in a travel agency in Putney, and I was cycling uh, from my home just past Wimbledon Common to Putney every day and working in travel agents. and And that too was a really good sort of early uh, indication of you know how you get on in business. And I can remember John Chalice walking in. One day, and I, John Chalice was uh, Boise in Only Fools and Horses, <laughs> and uh, he wanted to um, he wanted to buy uh, a couple of tickets to 
uh, go to Spain for him and his wife. And um, I can remember the owner of the travel agent saying, saying to him, you know, oh, can, please, can you ask for them in the, uh, in the voice of Boise? And so we have John <laughs> Chalice in this little travel agent saying, can I have two one-way tickets to Spain, please? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So that was, that was great. And, you know, in the evening I was teaching tennis. At the end of that summer, I moved down to Paul, well, Wimborne, and started off at college doing my A-levels. And I think the sort of early work grounding that I'd had, you know, by the age of 16, I'd already had three, three or four part-time jobs. You know, it, it, it just seemed natural to go out and work. And um, at college, I was uh, looking for a job and ended up in Holland and Barrett, which um, is a health food people um, on a Saturday. They didn't like the fact that I was uh, walking through the store with a Burger King on Saturday lunchtime. Um, <laughs> inducive to, um, to, to what they were trying to do. And, and to be honest, it wasn't really my, my cup of tea. And so I then joined Russell and Bromley, which formed part of my later career that I'll, I'll speak about in a moment. But hold on a minute. Let me go back to something. Yeah. This was a job at Holland and Barrett on a Saturday. Yeah. What about your beloved AFC Wimbledon? Well, this was part of the point. Um, <laughs> AFC, um, as they were still just at Plough Lane, um, <laughs> it was very difficult for me to see Wimbledon because I actually stayed at the travel agents and did a few weeks in that sort of first term of A-levels. And so I did get the opportunity to go back and see them, but it was sort of the beginning of a period where I didn't really see much of Wimbledon, one of the problems of moving down. And in actual fact, I was living with my aunt at the time because mum and dad hadn't sold the house back in Wimbledon. And uh, so it, it was very much a case of doing A-levels and getting on the train on a Friday, going back, working in the travel agents and, you know, trying to make the best of what was a pretty difficult situation. But mum and dad finally moved down in January of 1919. And I, I started looking around for a different job because Holland and Barrett and health food clearly wasn't my sort of scene. Uh, and got this job in Russell and Bromley and really, you know, enjoyed that. It taught me a lot of, uh, about sort of traditional companies and providing good service and selling, etc. And I did that throughout my A-levels and then went off to university. And at university, I did a degree in town planning. Uh, I thought that would be something that I was interested in with economic development. Didn't have a job really at university uh, until I came back in the summer. And in the summer of the, uh, after the first year at university, which was in Coventry, I decided because my girlfriend was working there that I would uh, get a job in McDonald's. And it was in McDonald's where I met my new boss, who was Mr. Doman, Peter Doman, who uh, works at Basil Fry now. And, and that was quite an interesting story because Pete, being Pete, decided that it would be quite a good idea to run a tennis ladder in the summer, thinking <laughs> he'd be the best tennis player in the store, which of course he was, because you know, he had start, started the ladder before I turned up. And uh, on this break one day, I was told by Pete that, you know, well, as you're a crew member at McDonald's, you're going to have to join the tennis ladder. So I said, right, okay. 
And so I joined the tennis ladder and uh, he said, right, I'll play you first. So off we went to the tennis courts in Bournemouth. Didn't really know the guy. Seemed to be getting on quite well. Yeah, beat him. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that was, you know, quite a sort of monumental part of our early friendship. The tennis ladder disappeared and all the prize money went. It's still a mystery to me what he spent it on. Um, all those sort of accusations I could make. But um, Do you bring this up often with him? No. Uh, probably a couple of times a week. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's only 30 years ago. Plenty <laughs> of time. So, Pete, I, I kind of, I left university and then went to America to teach tennis for a bit. Came back from America. Pete was building his career in McDonald's and came back from America. Didn't really have a clue what to do because part of my degree, I'd worked for Dorset County Council for a whole year and just was of the opinion that it wasn't somewhere that I wanted to work. I'm, I tend to be a character who likes quick, quick results and planning. You know, if you want quick results, then, you know, you, you're, you're really in the wrong job. You know, it takes years for stuff to go through, as I'm sure you're aware. So I, I, I arrived back to a, a recession from America in 1995 and mum said to me, you know, what are you going to do? So I said, well, I don't, I don't know. I'm uh, going to take whatever job I can get. And I got a job actually that day um, working for an IT hardware supplier. Um, now, at the time, it, it was the idea was that network managers could run several different PCs from one screen using a network switch. And my job was to cold call companies and book uh, the salesman in to, to, to go in. And, you know, after four or five months, I'd really, I'd really had enough. I was living at home, which was great. Always and still do had a, a, have a wonderful relationship with my parents and had a wonderful childhood. But at the age of 22, when you're sort of had all that independence and traveling in America and everything, you know, you really, you really want to, you really want to move on. So I, I then began to reflect. I knew that I wasn't good enough at tennis to become a full-time tennis coach, really. So I, I looked back through my CV and, and then thought about Russell and Bromley and wrote to Russell and Bromley and said, look, you know, do you have a management scheme that I can go on? And they said, well, yes, we do. Um, I said, well, I used to work for you as a Saturday boy. They looked at my sales records because they were all individually kept and said, okay, you know, I had three interviews and started off in Salisbury, in their store in Salisbury, went to Manchester, Chester, Kingston, Bromley. And then my first store was Leightonstone, which they asked me to close down, said, You'll, you, you know, you won't make any money, but you've got to close the store in two months. We, end, we ended up 200% up on, on target. My first store, ironically, was Bournemouth. So I was back at home, ran Bournemouth for a year and a half and doubled the turnover in there. Edinburgh was a store where they had a, an issue uh, and I went up there and cleaned, cleaned that up and then I went to Chelsea and did very well there. And while I was at Chelsea, I, you know, I realised I was making very quick progression through Russell and Bromley, but the, the, the top jobs in the organisation were 
held by people who weren't really going to be going anywhere. You know, the Russell and Bromley is a family-owned company and still is. And I realised, you know, that whilst I might make area management, there wasn't probably probably wasn't going to be much more above that because the owners of the company were running it themselves. And one day, Philip rung me up and said, "Look, I'm um, I'm coming up to London, go and see a client. Do you want to meet for some lunch?" So I said, "Yeah, okay." And we went out for a Chinese. And whilst we're in the Chinese, he said, "Look." Mum's been talking to me about your career. You know, really wanted you to go out and and have a have a career first. But you know, we're really interested in having you at Basil Fry. I think you know the, there are various skills that you have that we don't have, um, and we think uh, it would be good to to have you on board. So I went off for a, uh, an interview with Chris Fry, and it was a big decision at the time because a because I had to take a pay cut, and b because I was just getting married. I'd met my wife, Helen, whilst working in Bournemouth, proposed to her up uh, Edinburgh Castle in Edinburgh, which was quite an interesting story in itself because as I went down on one knee, this American tourist shouted across the top of the castle, Marvin, he's proposing to her. (laughs) (laughs) Put me off my stride a little bit. (laughs) <laughs> but, um, yeah, and it was a big decision. I had to give three months' notice to Russell and Bromley, but, you know, I, I thought about it long and hard, spoke to Helen in some depth and just came to the conclusion that this was this was a step that I wanted to take. And so I joined joined in 2001, the day before 9-11. Wow. Um, so on the day of 9-11, we were out, Philip and I were out seeing a client and, you know, I didn't really... You know, not know really what was going to happen in the meeting, um, and had no experience of the insurance industry really at all. I was just there to listen and learn. And uh, it was whilst we were going over to see the client that we heard on the radio about uh, uh, what 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 had happened. Yeah, and on my first day uh, at Basel Fry, I can remember Chris Thorpe saying to me as I was leaving after my first day, it's a bit harder than selling shoes, isn't it, Mr. Wildman Jr.? And <laughs> I reflected on that, you know, came to the conclusion that, you know, all businesses are service-related. Every business has, you know, its fundamental reasoning for being there, you know, whether you're a remover or, or you, you work in your, your area of work or you're an insurance broker. And so I, I just came to the conclusion it was it was slightly different. I was very grateful and always remember getting my first piece of business, which was early in 2002, when um, John Panton from Britannia Smith and Panton gave me his fleet to look after. And that was a you know, really proud moment for me. And I, I went from there to take over recruitment in 2004 because Basil Fry had 14 staff at the time. And I'd been running a store in Chelsea that had 50 staff and, you know, we were, we were hiring and firing all the time. You know, we kind of had one eye on the future all the time. We, we knew that Chris Fry and Chris Thorpe would want to retire at some point. And so Philip and I really went about trying to recruit the right people who would take us forward, you know, post Chris Fry and Chris Thorpe's retirement, which eventually happened 
in 2007. And prior to that, Ria Houston, or it was Compton at the time, but it's Houston now, joined us in 2005. And going back to Pete, Pete had got up to a sort of area consultancy position with McDonald's and sent me his CV in 2007, just as we were purchasing the business, saying you know that he wanted to get into banking or insurance. And, and I just looked at his CV and knowing the character that he was, our, our sort of friendship had developed to the point where I was his best man at his wedding and he was, he was one of my best men at my wedding. I knew he would be perfect for us. So, so Pete joined in 2007. Adam Kellaway had joined us in 2006 and actually has done two stints with the company, left in 2012 and rejoined in 2016. And then later on, we took on RFD and the lady who runs our claims handling, um, Amy, who's our claims director in 2014. So we, you know, our, our purpose pre-2007 was really to get a team together that would allow us to look to the future. And each one of these individuals, it, I, I kind of, sometimes I think of us as a sort of, you know, what my mum would refer to as a, a pizza wheel from Trivial Pursuit, you know, the, with the little pegs that go into the ground yeah, yeah. piece. You know, everyone brings something different to to the table, as it were. You know, Ria is our operations director, is very well organised and structured. I always thought that I was, you know, a very competent networker until saw Pete in action. And, you know, he, he can move around a room really quickly and speak to people very efficiently. Adam is, has got a very strong technical bent to what he does, has a first-class honours degree in insurance and is, in, uh, is a chartered insurance broker. And so he, he brings a sort of technical angle. Sue is our, our finance director and Amy is, is our um, claims director. And, you know, everyone has... And it's sort of purpose, purposefully built in this way from the beginning. Everyone has a purpose to, to fulfill a sort of total service that we give to our clients. So did any of you have to do any training regarding this? Because as Chris said to you, it's a bit of difference between selling shoes and selling insurance. But you know, there's a lot to selling insurance. Yeah, there is. And, um, you know, the Basel Fryway has always been to um, train people on the job. In the early days, you know, there's, there's been a lot of talk within your podcast about conferences, and you know, this was the sort of holy grail for me. I would love to get to a conference. I, I joined the company in 2001. I didn't get to a conference until 2005. You know, there was a, a, a lot of grounding and training done, but you know, it was pretty clear early on, and this I don't think is a biased thing to say because he's my brother but it was pretty clear early on that I probably had the best teacher the most competent and complete insurance broker to the removals industry is my teacher in Philip and I, I you know I was working directly for him and so the training was really enjoyable and, be, and sort of later on and when we knew that we were going to be purchasing the company um, it becomes almost more fulfilling then because you know that you're contributing to your to your future hopefully your future success yeah 
yeah, there's, there's, there's training. We've all, all, all the board members have relevant qualifications be on the board. Don't have to have, but we, we all do. And so, yeah, the, 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 the training part of it is, is vital, really. And all, all of us spent, you know, a good couple of years learning, really, about two industries, especially, you know, my, myself and Pete. Firstly, learning about the removals industry and, and, and then applying the insurance over the top and how it all, how, how it all links in. And you know anyone who says they don't, they don't learn on their job every day. Uh, I think is is wrong. You know we're le- we're learning all the time, aren't we? The training absolutely. So that's that was the sort of brief, plotted history of how I how I arrived at Basil Fry. So Basil Fry, yeah. Can you tell everybody about Basil Fry and the services it offers? We're, we're in, insurance consultants to the removals and self-storage industries. Our real jewel in the crown is, is removal claims services, which is, as I said before, run by Amy, which provides claims handling for goods in transit um, policies on an, on an authority given by insurers and also assists companies with motor and liability and public liability claims. So that... In a nutshell, is what we do. However, and I'm sure you will accept this, as suppliers to the industry, you get called on all the time to provide services that you don't actually provide. Which, you know, I may have mentioned to you before, um, I received a call from one of my clients once saying, Right, you, you've bought a few Audis in your time. So I said, Yes, yeah, I've bought three. He said, right, well, you're a better negotiator than I am because you negotiate all the time. Yes, maybe. So he gave me this spec of this Audi Q3 that he, he wanted his parents to, to well, his parents wanted to buy, rather, and said, I've got this price of 22670 or whatever it was. See if you can do any better and literally dispatch me to our, my local Audi dealer. Um, and, you know, uh, I thought... Driving down, and I thought, why, why actually, why am I doing this? I don't know why I'm, I'm involved. <laughs> I don't know why I'm involved with this, but I am. And I guess you know, you do it through wanting to provide a, as complete a service to your clients as possible, and and of course, it helped form that bond, doesn't it? And so, yeah, Audi was purchased for twenty one and a half thousand pounds, and client is very happy. And so we do, you know, we do all sorts of things. People ring us up, ask us. You know, if anyone's got a seven and a half tonner with a particular spec, get calls quite often from, you know, the entrepreneurial, the entrepreneurs in the, uh, in the industry asking us if, if we know of any businesses that are for sale. And, you know, it's all part and parcel of providing a service, service to your client. But that's probably because you're, you're like myself, you're more involved within your client's business than most people realize. Although I've supplied obviously software, the amount of questions that I get, so I have to literally cover my backside on insurance, on liability, on you know what the BAR is doing at the moment, the terms and conditions and that, because people often find it easier to come and ask you than go and ask their insurance broker or their... their, their um... Yeah, you, you become an expert in all sorts of different fields. However, 
I can reassure you that I'm definitely not going to become an expert in your field because computers and me are, are not a happy marriage. <laughs> I'll behave. I'll tell you what, Greg, I'll teach you computers, you teach me tennis. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been quite a few years. I think Pete's quite pleased because he's kept up with his tennis and he claims now that he would beat me, but I haven't played for 20 years. I, I think, you know, he... I don't think you'd ever lose it, though. No, well, it's one of those sports, you know, as soon as yeah. you pick the racket up and take a few, uh, take a few hits, you, you're, you're back in the zone again. Um, although I'm sure Pete has continued to have lessons. I'm sure one day he's going to get me back out on the tennis court. So long as it's not with his daughter, Scarlett, I don't mind because she is a very, <laughs> com- competent, very competent tennis, Hampshire tennis player. Isn't she just? Mm. So... What are the main differences between liability cover and insurance cover? And what is your guesstimate of the percentage between the two within the industry? Okay, well, it's quite a quick answer, this one. Liability is a contractual arrangement between the remover and the client with an insurance policy sitting in the background that the client doesn't have sight of, effectively. They only see they only receive the benefit of it if if there's a, an issue and if the remover wants to make a claim against it. With insurance cover, it's a, it's a benefit of an open cover, with the client purchasing the right effectively to make a claim from the remover, and they receive a summary of insurance and they have the ability to to make complaints to the necessary organisations that are involved in 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 the chain. So that's that's the principal difference. The end result, of course, is if you scratch Mrs. Smith's dining table, then Mrs. Smith's dining table will get fixed, whether you're on liability or whether you're on insurance cover. And what, do you, what would you say is the split in the industry at the moment? I mean, what, what's the percentage-wise of maybe your clients that are liability over insured? We have roughly 1,500 removers on our books. I would say that... The split is probably 70-30 in favour of providing insurance cover. Wow. 30% will be on standard liability and 70 on the deregulated insurance arrangement. Wow, that surprises me because I thought it might have been the other way around. So that's a good one to note. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think, you know, it's been, it's been a period of confusion, really, in a way, because... In 2005, actually the day that RIA joined our business, the FSA regulated the sale of insurance and as part of that, removers were, were, were caught up with it. And sort of everyone, or all, all the Basel Fry's clients anyway, went over onto the standard liability solution. Um, and it was only a few years later when it was, it was deemed that, that there was a deregulated position that could be taken up by removers. That the removers started to move the other way. And you've got to remember that at around that time, 2008, 2009, we, we had a recession. And our advice back in sort of 2004 in preparation for this was, well, we, you know, we, we understand you're going to lose an insurance revenue. So instead of charging £500 for your move, build the insurance revenue in to the job and start charging 550 but of course the recession came along and when the recession came along there was there was competitive squeeze on prices and that insurance revenue 
slowly disappeared. And so when the opportunity arose for removers to sell insurance again, you know, quite quite a few of them took it. Yeah, uh, and there's obviously the difference in liability and insurance, as in insurance has got insurance premium tax at 12% and liability has got VAT at 20%. Correct. Yeah, well, so I was you suspect. Save, you save your customer a, a few quid there. I know it's only 8%, but it's still a saving and it's, it's an extra revenue earner for the company. It, it is. Well, I would suspect with COVID and the amount of money that the government have spent, I saw a figure on the BBC News yesterday that was at something like 800 billion, um, that they'll be trying to claw some of that back. So I would, wouldn't be surprised to see a movement in IPT uh, come the budget. Yeah, I agree with that. So when is the best time to change from being a company offering standard liability to offering an insurance solution? I know there's, you say that there's only like 30% of the companies on your books, but you know, if you are somebody at the moment that is liability, is there a time to change or is it just a case of, I want to charge for insurance now? No, I think, I think the inference there is that somehow an insurance solution is more of a professional way to go than offering standard liability. And frankly, it isn't. Both are perfectly adequate in providing the customer with indemnity. And there, it should, should be said at this point, there are some very large national removers who still work on standard liability solutions. So there is no real correct answer for that. The liability solution allows the remover to maintain a greater element of control over the insurance solution. The only benefit really with the insurance solution is that it allows uh, the remover to generate that additional revenue. And what are the variety of ways of charging for cover? I see most charge a percentage of the removal or weekly storage, yet some are charging based on the valuation of the goods. Can a remover charge a fixed fee at all? Yeah, removers could can charge a fixed fee. In fact, one of the one of the pieces of guidance that I give to clients is starting off, you know, at a smaller end is if they want to go down the deregulated route, they could they could take the view of charging a, a fixed price insurance. But principally, there are just two ways, and that is, as you say. Percentage of the removal, cost and most are charging sort of ten or twelve percent, or as a percentage of the of the risk, the exposed risk. So taking the customer's declared value and applying a sort of two or three percent percentage points rate against that declared value and charging that. But there's no there's no real correct answer to it. It it really depends on how the remover feels, and you know after doing his or her due diligence in, in the geographical area to see who is doing what. Maybe people are charging the percentage of the weekly rate or the percentage of the removal cost because that's how they've done it over all the years and it works and, and it's a tried and tested solution and you're doing the same as your competitors. Maybe that's why they just carry on doing it this way. Yeah, I think, um, you know, what your competitors are doing, obviously, is a, is a, is a big consideration. And removers say to me all the time, you know, the customer looks at the quotation and goes straight down to the bottom and sees what the price is at the bottom. And yeah. so, you know, I'm not sure whether insurance actually should be 
such consideration. The consideration should be how much is being charged and, and you know, sell the removal based on, on the value that you're going to bring to that client. Oh, absolutely. It should always be based on, on the value of the service rather than anything else. What one piece of advice would you give to removers regarding liability insurance cover? Well, given that we have our in-house claim settlement authority via removal claim service, one of the things that we come across over and over again is removers who have been engaged and carried out a removal and not obtained a signed acceptance form. If you don't obtain a signed acceptance form, you are in a position where you haven't clarified properly the nature of your contract with your customer. So I say to all new customers and quite a lot of our customers at Renewal, please make sure you obtain signed acceptance before you touch anything. It's vital. Oh, absolutely. It staggers me, the amount of people that are still doing jobs where they still haven't got the acceptance back yet. I'm like, why? Yeah. I mean, you know, even now and again, you come across someone, so for example, piano movers, you know, we've got a couple of piano movers and they always make the point, well, you know, we might be in Cambridge and we might get a call from someone saying, can we go and pick up a piano in Oxford? And, you know, even for those guys, the way round it, you know, that the advice that I give them is, well, look, carry quotation acceptance forms on your van, give your customer time to read through the terms and conditions, you know, whilst you're getting prepared to move the piano and get a signature on a piece of paper. Protection is there, but only triggered by virtue of the fact the customer has signed the contract. So it causes all sorts of issues where, where we don't have them. So as you're also doing, the removal claims services. Have you had any funny claims? You must have had an awful lot of dodgy claims coming in, or oh, <laughs> oh, we've got we've got we've got loads, yeah, of examples, and and continue to 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 get them all the time. And um, we've had some pretty high profile claims, right down to customer who I went to see in Dorset a couple of years ago who received a claims form for half a bag of pasta that gone missing. <laughs> <laughs> but Chris Thorpe, who used to run Removal Claims Service, well, up until he retired in 2007, used to deal with these claims in a, in a, you know, in a really good way and was was you know quite hard on members of the public when they came in with spurious claims and remember this was an unregulated activity prior to 2005 so you could probably get away with a bit more than you could get away with now but I, I can remember him telling me a story about him not being happy with one particular claim so he settled it in stamps um, <laughs> you know or, or, yeah, we get we we get spurious claims all the time. It, it's and it's it's the skill of the adjusters down in removal claims service who have decades of experience. I mean, David Pite has been doing this job 
since I believe, and I hope I'm not going to be wrong, 1986. Joe and Emma, who used to work for Bob Tree at Willis, have been doing the job 20, 25 years. We've got another experienced adjuster uh, who previously worked in um, home insurance claims. You know, it's, it's their job to, to interpret the terms and conditions of contract correctly and to spot when they're having the wool pulled, pulled over their eyes. And they're very, very, very competent at doing that. Really I take it that only comes really with proper experience over yeah. the years. Yes, yeah. quite quite right. Yeah. So what challenges have you had to overcome then, Greg? Um, quite, quite a few, I, I think, in 20 years. I mean, purchasing the company under sort of as Philip's sort of second in command, Philip headed up the managing, uh, management buyout in 2007 and I was made a director at that time. That, that was a really a mixture of a, an opportunity and a real challenge, but it, could be, could, it became clear very quickly that it was actually going to be a massive challenge because we purchased the business and then went round the corner of 2007 into that really vicious recession, which kind of... We kind of had an idea that something was wrong because as insurance brokers to the removals industry, you start to, you, you start, you're sort of one step ahead of the economy. You know, you know that things are getting bad because you start seeing removers turnovers going down a bit. You start noticing that last year they had 10 vehicles and now they've only got nine or the manual wage roll has decreased, which is a trigger for the employee's liability policy. And so we kind of had an idea. And then I, when I was down at uh, Maidman's seeing Brian, and I, I can remember walking into his office and he, he, him saying to me, look, he said, I've been for a meeting, breakfast meeting this morning at the, at the bank. We're going to have a very, very nasty recession. He said, so for goodness sake, pay everything off in your private life, button down the hatches. Get ready because it's going to be it's going to be pretty brutal. And he was, of course, right. So that that was a real challenge for us. We started, you know, I can remember talking to Philip about it, and um, we'd just hired Pete, and Philip was of the opinion that to successfully fight the recession, you you needed, you know, we needed to beef up our army, as it as it were, and you know, get some more account executives on board and you know, go to more BAR meetings than we had been. And and that's what we did. That's how we fought it. But that was that was a real challenge. And you know what I alluded to earlier, the sort of planning for the future and spotting talent and trying to understand how they're going to fit into your business in ten years time. That was a real challenge as well because you know I, I knew in two thousand and seven that I was probably going to be purchasing the business in 2017 because Philip had sort of pre-warned me. He said, look, you know, we, we're buying it together now. He was heading it up. And in, in about 10 years' time, it's going to be your turn. So, you know, start making preparations for that. It might feel like we're some way off. But, you know, you've got to get people up to the necessary level of, of skill and, and ambition and, you know, being in the right place 
to to assist you in in running the business in 2017 and so now that's what we that's what we started concentrating on, and I, you know I'm really proud of of the way we we built that team because as I said to you earlier, you know we I, I don't view that I run this business by myself. We're very much it's very much a team effort. The board of directors are an inclusive bunch, and you know when I look at what's going to happen in the future, I'm really happy with the staff that we've taken on over the last five years because you know we've got considerable amount of talent coming through the business so that that has really been a a challenge obviously you hire you hire people and they disappoint you or we disappoint them you know and and the relationship doesn't continue so it's really difficult to know who's going to stick who's going to stick around you try and treat people as, as best as you can but that's that's been a real that's been a real challenge. On a personal note, in 2010, my colon burst. So that was a big challenge. I've done a big piece of business with a public limited company who um, had just got into mobile self storage. Literally on the Wednesday before my colon burst, and it burst on the sort of Friday stroke Saturday, and you know, that that was the immediate challenge of that was obviously that I was out of action for quite a while. But, you know, even at, even at that time, Pete had been around for three years, had worked in McDonald's training department, was a blue chip qualified trainer. And so he, he took up the training stuff with them whilst Philip, Philip ran the insurances. But that was a real challenge, obviously been in a situation where you're on the on the verge of death and seeing your seeing your wife wife there and you know all the pressure that it, it, it put her under with our children who at the time were seven and five that, that was a big that was a big challenge in my life and also one that I look back with with a, with a great deal of positivity you know I, I can remember being in hospital and three removers came to visit me while I was in the hospital and I you know thought at the time how nice how nice that was that I built up such good friendships with people Philip came in and with a puncture repair kit <laughs> Stuart Almandras came in with a potato you know all these people turning up thinking that they were um, I thought oh that's nice they've come to visit me and actually all they wanted to do was take the mickey <laughs> I wonder why Matthew Schofield sat on the edge of my bed and said I've come to shave you so that was a bit strange, but yeah. Um, <laughs> so I had, to, I had two operations as a result of that, and was was sort of out, out of action from the summer of 2010, broadly speaking, to to April 2011. So that that was a challenge for me, and and of course there is an ongoing challenge, you know, from buying the business in 2017 and thinking about the things that I had thought about. You know, when Philip was the MD and thinking, right, when I when I take over, I'm going to try that. And then realising that Philip was might have been right. Or on one or two occasions, he, you know, we've made a success of it. So, you know, it's been, it's, it's, it's a challenge all the time. And, and, you know, I think everyone in business has continuous challenges, don't they? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The great thing is, though, you have an awesome family behind you and you have an awesome team in the company. Yeah. 
What is your high point of being in the industry? Well, I think it was David Bunting in your, in your podcast. He said, well, I've written down five, five points. Well, I, I've actually got six. Um, ah, yeah. ah, ah. He's not going to like that. I'm going to no. have to get him back on. <laughs> when I joined in 2001, I was desperate to get out there and take on clients. And, you know, quite rightly had a period in the office where I had to learn. But in, in 2003, I can remember getting my first big client who, who was spending a six-figure six figure sum. And that, that was a real... Buzz, especially as I was out with Chris Fry at the time and the remover in question rung, rung us while we were in the car and informed me that, you know, that he wanted to proceed with us. He'd been with his previous insurance broker for 60 years. Um, oh, wow. Because he was, a, he was a, well, he's actually a third or fourth generation mover. And so, you know, that was a real high point, you know, getting to a position where Someone was 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 trusting me to the extent that they would that that they would you know give me their insurances you know I've been in the business for a couple of years that was a a, a real high point gaining the interest of other insurance brokerages and you know people approaching me for uh, to work for them was has been a, a high point becoming a director and building our building our team you'll probably gather how passionate I am about our board of directors and, our, and, and the team we have here at Battle Fry, that, that's been a continual high point for me. But becoming a director in 2007 was, was, was a great, great high point, especially going into buying the business with my brother. You know, that, that, it, it made, made it feel slightly different. It was, you know, it was fantastic. And um, it, it was a culmination, really, of... of, of of many years of sort of training and listening to him and and finally sort of definitely being accepted, you know, accepted um, within the company. It was great. Promoting people to the board who, are, who I have championed, you know, um, Pete and Rhea, Amy, and Adam and Sue. That That's a great feeling. It, it's marvellous to see people getting on in their careers. And, 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 you know, really making a, a good go of it. Becoming the MD would be number five. And I suppose my final one would be the friends that I have in the industry have provided me with many high points, you know, and many laughs. There's too, really too many of them, too many of them to mention. But, you know, I have, I have a good deal of friends in South London, Dr. Stuart, Ian and... Dell and Simon from Britannia Beckwith that we socialise a lot together and, and they provide me with high points. And, you know, I've learned a lot from them because, you know, as I said earlier, to, to an extent, it doesn't matter, you know, what your main service offering is. We're all running businesses and, you know, you learn, you learn from, well, actually, I can say this, you learn from your elders because they are all older than me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you also you also learn from from you know you learn from everyone you learn from staff who are who are who are much younger and just starting off. Sometimes someone will say something and think, "Oh, I've never thought of that. That's a good idea." So um, yeah, so they they would be my six. For the removal industry, it's so diverse, but it's so down to earth. It just it it does become an extension of your own family. 
Oh, very, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. There are some incredible people out there running successful removal companies. Yeah. And and the generosity of them as well is is oh, absolutely. As I said to you earlier, my father passed away in the summer, and uh, I was speaking to a remover yesterday who you've you've had on your podcast. And he said, "Look, anything, any help you need, we'll have a we'll have a lorry at uh, her house, and um, we'll we'll help. Anything you want, just give me a ring." And I thought, "That's you know, that's what a lovely thing yeah. to say." You know, yeah, it's uh, it really is. You know, you feel like you're part of one massive family. It's it's great. Absolutely. And you know, our, our clients as well are our, our greatest advert. Absolutely. As I'm sure yours are. Well, we have many mutual clients. We do. We do indeed. <laughs> but yeah, every single one of them. So, what one thing would you change within the moving and insurance industry? So you can have one of each here if you want. Yeah. Well, you know, I think. It's not going to come as a surprise to you with, with the moving industry. You know, I think with the people you've had on your podcast seem to sort of echo the same sort of thing. It's either public perception or some form of regulation has been required. I think public perception is, is really one thing that I'd like to see improve. Members of the public just simply do do not understand what goes on and believe that it's an unskilled job. And clearly, I remember very early on after joining Puzzle Fry trying to move a table around my house and taking a part of the um, wooden door frame out with this table and damaging the table and thinking, yeah, you know, how does any how does anyone get a table this size through that doorway? And, you know, you only have to watch on the removals that you've had done yourself. You only have to watch the level of skill to to get something very large to a relatively small space. You know, what a skilled job it is. And I just wish that the public would recognise that. But, you know, I think some 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 probably do. Others don't. And uh, it's it's deeply frustrating to me. In insurance... I'll have a bit of a complaint about the insurers here, I think. Their service levels are very poor. And and as as a broker's stuck in the middle, you know, I, I have quite a few conversations with removers. You know, we might be two weeks before renewal. I haven't got my terms yet. Well, you know, we're waiting for an underwriter to, to sign them off. They um they they don't tend to move very quickly. And they don't tend to be that commercial, which is which is strange. But there we are. I'd like to see them be a, be a bit more proactive. Where do you see both the moving and the insurance industry in the next five years? Well, I'll start with the insurance industry, I think. Um, I think the insurance industry is becoming more and more internet-based. I think... We're in an industry, in the moving industry, where it is harder for them to accurately underwrite risk. And so I'm hopeful that we will be in a similar position as we are in in five years' time. I don't see any any reason for us not to be. In the moving industry, of course, 
you kind of tend to do you kind of tend to look at the generation of people coming through and you know you look at the young movers group that, that the British uh, Association of removers have set up and there's some some really good some really good characters in there I'd like to say giants Kieran Malarkey and Calvin Tickler are both over six foot five <laughs> there's a uh, no, there's some great people in the Young Movies group. I, I, I can see that the, the moving industry and VAR is going to be in good hands. And just so that everybody knows, I do have the Young Movers group council on a future podcast, so watch this space. Ah, is it going to be in the alcohol there? Eh? Might give him some baby sham. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be interesting. So what do you do outside of the industry to switch off? Well, I think it's difficult to switch off. I think, you know, as a business owner, you're always keeping half an eye on things. And and at any time, of course, the phone could go with someone who's having a difficult problem that they need some urgent advice with. So, um, but generally I go to uh, see AFC Wimbledon when I can with uh, my oldest son. And I have one or two hobbies. I like collecting watches, which funnily enough I do with a couple of my removal friends. We look at watches and go out together and go to secondhand fairs, etc. So I do that. How many watches do you have, Greg? Um, not many. About 20, I'd say. <laughs> but you've only got one wrist, or two, or two wrists, obviously, but you, you, you generally only wear them on one wrist. You do, you do indeed. Um, but um, I know we were talking about Apple Watches earlier. Um, it's admittedly a very useful tool, but I don't own one of those because... They're okay, I must admit. I, I generally, I've got mine on now, and I generally wear it during the day, but if I'm going out somewhere for like a nice meal in an evening or, or whatever, I generally don't wear it i wear i put my watch on yeah that's that's good one of my co-directors wears an apple watch with mickey mouse hands on it yeah well that's quite good yeah (laughs) (laughs) um yeah um so i do that with um stuart and um simon yeah we're into our watches uh and socializing with clients mainly to be honest but uh, as you said earlier you know, you become part of people's families and they become part of your family. So, you know, I've been on holiday with removers in the past. And, uh, yeah, most of my social life is taken up with, with seeing, seeing them catching up with movers, hearing their stories. And it helps me to, I mean, that really helps in the business as well because it helps you think about, you know, how you're going to address those issues or overcome those problems. for Talking of holidays... I heard you went on a successful safari with some of your removal clients. I did, back in 2008. And it, it, was, it was really back in 2008. And I'd, I, I mean, I'd worked for Specialised before then, but it, was, it really was in 2008 in, in South Africa where, you know, I, my, I sort of cemented my friendship with Nigel and Carol. And yeah, there's many funny stories uh, about that holiday. 
but uh, yeah, um, so it's really where I met him first. And, you know, spending so much time with him and um, Stuart and Jules were there as well. You, you know, I learned quite a bit different things about them and what, they, what they'd been up to with their careers and what they'd done. And, you know, I, I suppose, yeah, we had a good laugh. Let's, let's leave it at that. <laughs> it's another fascinating aspect about the industry because you don't just get to know about the boss of the company, you get to know about their family as well. So like yeah. I said, it's it just a, an extension and, you know, they're, they're clients. At the end of the day, they're clients, but they also become good friends and yes. you get to know a lot about them, they get to know a lot about you. Yeah, and it, it is obviously important to remember their clients as well. And, um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's a difficult line sometimes. And finally, I like to end my podcasts with a funny moving story. Now, I know you're in insurance, but do you have one or more to tell? I do have a funny moving story. I, I guess at this point, it's not the correct time to talk about Peter walking into a glass revolving door at the Movies and Stories show in 2008. <laughs> um, and ending up in the bar with a bloody nose. So I won't mention that on your podcast. I'll um, remove that. Don't worry, Greg. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll keep that between you and I. I'll, I'll delete it later. Yeah. I, I can remember Rhea. She was still crying about that about 10 minutes later and still laughs about it today. Yeah, no, I do have a funny story. And it revolves around my own move in 2005. And I, I thought at the time, well, I'm, I'm going to get someone who I've worked for for two, two years at least, to, to do my house move for me. So I uh, had developed and still am good friends with this remover who is based in Essex and always have good levels of banter between us. And so I said to him, look, can you do the move? And he said, yeah, I'd love to. What does it involve? So we... We had a discussion about that and he said, right, it's going to be a two-day move. Day one, I'll come down and I'll do all the packing for you. And you can chat to me while I'm packing and make me tea, stuff like that. So I said, right, okay, that, that's fine. We'll do that. So he came down and I sort of stood there watching, you know, the, the skill involved in packing stuff like the crystal and china bits that we had. And that evening we went to the pub, had a bit of dinner and the bill came and he pushed the bill my way. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm your customer tonight. I'm your customer. You're paying the food bill, not me. Anyway, that wasn't a funny story. So we, we, arrived, at the, we arrived at the property that we're moving into the next morning and we're walking up the um, driveway and he said, oh, look, Mr. Wildman, it seems like Mr. Fox has left you a moving in present. And so there it was, some fox mess in the front garden on the lawn. So I said, well, you know, obviously that's got nothing to do with me. That's your job. You've got to remove the fox mess. You know, I, I don't get involved with that. So, you know, move, superb, everything. Yeah, three guys uh, went like a dream. About three o'clock in the afternoon, my wife Helen, Greg, Greg, there's something on the carpet downstairs. So I walk downstairs into the lounge and there's this sort of mess on the, on the beige carpet in the lounge. So I 
did what I had to do and established that it was Fox Mass and called my client, let's just call him Matthew, and said, you know, you've got someone who's trodden Fox Mess into the beige carpet in the lounge. And he said, well, I told you to clear the, the present that Mr. Fox had left for you. And I said, well, you know, I said to you, that's not my job. That's your job. So he said, right, okay, well, we'll find out who the perpetrator is. So he lined his guys up in the hall. And he said, right, guys, lift his shoes up. They all lifted their shoes up. Nothing there. And he said, right, Mr. Wildman, lift your shoe up. Let's have a look at it <laughs> in a way that only he can. And so I lifted my shoes up and, of course, it was nothing there. And I said, well, given that we're now in this situation and everyone else has had their shoes inspected, it only seems to be fair that you have yours inspected now. So he lifted his shoe up and there it was, nestling between the treads oh. of his shoe. So I said, well, look, you know, this, this is, you know, we're moving into a house. You know, you've got to clear, clean up. No, no worries. I'll deal with it. it much of the uh, mirth of some of his staff. I'll deal with it. So he set about cleaning the carpet. So I thought, right, it, the, the opportunity for banter here is just too, it's just too good. So he called me after about 20 minutes. He said, right, I've, I've cleaned it up. You can't see it at all. I said, no, what, what we have got left here, though, is a beige carpet that has been worn with a square in the middle of it that is really clean. I mean, it's just not, it's not, it's not good. You know, we can't put anything over that. It's in the centre of the lounge. What, what, what are we going to do? I said, I'm going to have to think about putting in a public liability claim against you. I said, because you know, <laughs> the, whole, the whole carpet's going to be, going to have to be clean. And I sort of, I walked off because I thought, this is, this is a good opportunity here. I said, I'll let you know in about 20 minutes. I'll have a think about it. Went off and did something else. And 20 minutes later, he came back and he said, um, have you decided what you're going to do with the, with the carpet yet? You know, are you going to make a claim against us? So I said, no, I'm not. And he said, all oh, right, okay, what, what changed your mind? I said, well, the carpet fitters are coming in the morning and they're going to change the carpet. He wasn't happy. He wasn't happy. But, that is so evil. <laughs> <laughs> and I did think about whether I was going to tell that story. Obviously, I haven't told you who it was. But um, what with Mr. Bullock talking about vibrators, I thought I was on, I was on, on, the, on easy ground there. Well, only, only Paul would talk about that subject. <laughs> no one's gone near it since. <laughs> Greg, I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Moving Matters. Thank you very, very much for your time. No, it's been great. Thanks, Colin. Really appreciate it. I sincerely hope you enjoyed episode nine of Moving Matters. If you did, then please tell your industry colleagues about Moving Matters, which they can listen along to on their podcast player of choice. And please, if you can, I would really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes. Many thanks to those that have. My thanks and appreciation go to Greg Wildman for giving up his time to record this episode. Thank you again, Greg. If you would like to know more about Basil Fry & Company and the services they offer, then you will find links within the show notes for this episode and on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. And please, if you have a funny moving story that can be relayed to our listeners, 
do reach out to me. Don't be shy now. I want your story told. So please complete the contact form on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. Tweet me at movingmatterspc or email me, host at movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. Well, that is all from me. So until next time, keep moving.